Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. It's really just like cultivating a plant. You know, you can take a, a cutting from a plant or a seed from a plant, and you bathe that seed in, in nutrients, and the plant grows. In this case, you take a, a biopsy, the size of a sesame seed from an animal, you bathe those cells in nutrients, and the cells multiply and grow. Because there are no animals involved, uh, you don't need antibiotics, which literally means anti-life. You don't need pesticides or herbicides for cultivated seafood. You're not going to have the dioxins or the mercuries that collect in the in fish flesh. Uh, it is a far cleaner product uh, at the end of the day, and consequently far safer for people and their families. You bathe the cells in nutrients. It looks like a beer brewery, but instead of having these fats, you know, with beer in them, you have these fats essentially with meat. That's Bruce Friedrich, and this is episode 109 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey friends, I hope you're healthy and keeping well. For regular listeners, welcome back. It's great to, to be back here again with you. For new listeners, welcome. It's awesome to have you join us. My name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast, physiotherapist, nutritionist, and I'm glad that you managed to find the show. And I really do hope you get something out of today's episode that helps you become more mindful and conscious of the way that you eat. That's what each episode is about, a non-judgmental, non-preachy space to talk about diet, to talk about being mindful of our decisions. And really an opportunity to sit down with inspiring people from all over the world, doctors, nutritionists, dietitians, athletes, people who have overcome chronic disease and generally folks that are working hard to create positive change in the world. For those who are regular listeners of the show, you will know very well by now that not only am I interested or curious in in how our food choices affect human health, but also how they affect planetary health. After all, the, the two are inextricably tied to one another. I'm forever curious about what changes we can make at an individual level, but also at a community and population level to reduce the healthcare burden, live our best lives and do good by the planet at the same time. And one thing that's clear is animal agriculture in particular is terribly unsustainable. And really, the the word unsustainable is somewhat of an understatement. The mass production of meat and dairy in particular across the globe comes at a huge cost, such an enormous cost. That cost, along with incredible solutions that may just help us turn things around, is the topic of today's episode with guest Bruce Friedrich. Bruce is a lawyer and co-founder of the Good Food Institute, a nonprofit organization that promotes plant-based alternatives to meat, dairy, and eggs, as well as cultivated meat, also known as cultured meat and cell-based meat, as alternatives to the products of conventional animal agriculture. I first came across Bruce a few years ago now and have been actively watching and researching the space of cultivated meat from afar ever since. 
For those who are long-time listeners, you may recall an earlier episode over two years ago now with Thomas King from Food Frontier. And in that conversation, we explored some of this territory. Albeit things have changed a lot in in the last two years. It's fascinating, mind-blowing, and at first it can seem outrageous. But given the seismic shifts that we need to take place, I really do see it as one of the most exciting industries in the world today. So it goes without saying, it was an absolute privilege to have him on the show, and I really do hope you enjoy it. Please bring an open mind and listen a few times. Remember, it wasn't long ago that mobile phones and SMS messaging didn't exist. Folks, like my mum, were using pages. I'm a, a little too young to have had a page of myself, but I do remember playing Snake on my Nokia 5110. All the 80s and 90s kids will be with me there. The point is, change happens fast, and I have a feeling this is going to be one of those spaces. So with that said, let's do this. It's time to hear from Bruce Friedrich, and I'll see you on the other side for a quick debrief. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here, Simon. It's a pleasure to to have this opportunity to, to chat with you. You work in the fascinating world of, of plant-based meat and, and cultivated or, or clean meat, as people may have heard of it before. And I've watched both of your, your TED Talks, your, your original one, and then your TEDx talk. And I absolutely love the work that you're doing with Good Food Institute. So firstly, thank you for, for what you do. And uh, thank you for taking the time to connect today. That's incredibly kind of you, Simon. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, yeah, really, I'm really looking forward to chatting. Now, I've been sort of thinking about how we do this conversation and and sort of how we unpack everything there. You know, as I said, it's a, it's a very exciting space that offers what I believe and I know what you believe, uh, a, really, a really strong solution to combat many global issues that we, we currently face from climate change to antibiotic resistance, uh, zoonotic diseases, food security, animal welfare, et cetera, all things that you talk about frequently. So there's certainly quite a bit that we can cover and clearly there's a lot on the line. So I really want to step this out with you in a way that's easy for people to understand who may be hearing about this industry and some of these issues for the very first time. Why don't we start at a at a very high level to to frame this conversation by defining these terms that I just used, plant-based meat and cultivated or, or clean meat, and then we can move into this innovation and, and the transformation of our food system and, and, and why this is so important in terms of tackling some of these issues. That sounds perfect. So yeah, plant-based meat um, is what it sounds like. It's meat made from plants. Probably a lot of people are going to have some, bring some preconceived notions and just think sort of veggie burger, veggie nuggets or whatever, and that's plant-based meat. Uh, but the idea of plant-based meat is to actually replicate meat with plants. Uh, and it stems from the ideas of people like Pat Brown from Impossible Foods and Ethan Brown from Beyond Meat, two Browns, no relation. And the central brainstorm is just that meat is made up of lipids, aminos, amino acids, minerals, and water. That is all meat is. And plants 
also have lipids, aminos, minerals, and water. So up until Ethan Brown and Pat Brown, the way that veggie burgers, veggie nuggets, you know, vegetarian meats got to us was that the soy oil industry had a bunch of protein that they didn't know what to do with. The wheat carbohydrate industry for things like pasta and bread had a lot of protein that they didn't know what to do with. And they essentially reconstituted it into something that looked like a burger or whatever else and marketed it to flexitarians, marketed it to people who wanted to eat less meat. The brainstorm of, of people like Ethan Brown and Pat Brown is that no, if we hire meat scientists and tissue engineers and chemical engineers, if we hire the right people, um, we can actually create meat from plants, something that has the taste, the texture, everything that people like about meat, but without the need for farms, without the need for slaughterhouses, and consequently at a much lower adverse impact across a range of issues that I know that we're going to get into. So that's plant-based meat. And then cultivated meat uh, just takes tissue engineering for therapeutics and cross-applies it to food. So we know how to grow animal tissue. We have mostly done it for human beings, for medical applications. Uh, but you can take the concept of taking cells, bathing them in nutrients on a scaffold and growing them. Um, and you can figure out how to do that for food. And that's where cultivated meat comes from. So right now, you feed an animal, the animal's cells multiply and grow. That's what the animal getting larger, that's what's entailed. Overwhelming inefficiency in that process. Uh, instead, you can just take a biopsy from an animal the size of a sesame seed painless process and feed those cells directly. So with, you know, you want to grow a chicken to slaughter weight, it's going to take you six or seven weeks. You feed the cells directly, you can get that same growth in six days. Uh, so it's just a diff two different ways of producing meat. One involves creating meat from plants and the other involves growing actual animal meat, uh, but growing it from cells without all of the external costs of the way we do it now. I think some people listening that may have heard that for the, for the very first time sort of see that as something out of a, a science fiction movie, uh, growing, growing meat outside of the body of, of an animal. It seems like a very foreign idea. And after we sort of go through some of these issues and, and I guess why there is such great importance for this innovation, let's, let's dive into a cellular meat a little bit deeper in terms of how they are actually cultivating these cells. Um, and we'll just sort of explain that, that process a little bit more. But on the issues that, that these, that innovation in this space can help solve, why is it so incredibly important that right now we're looking at, at governments getting behind this, this space? We're looking at companies getting into this space. And, and, and why does the, act, the current food system need to transform in the first place? Yeah, we generally put uh, we generally put the external costs of the present way that we create meat into three buckets. The first one is global health and something like antibiotic resistance. If your listeners and viewers want to scare, they should Google the end of working antibiotics and see what comes up. You want an even bigger scare? Add the word China to that, um, or you could just Google pig zero and look at the front page piece in the New York Times from about six months ago. But um, if anybody listening to this, watching this, gets sick and they need antibiotics, they're going to be put on a course of antibiotics somewhere between five and 10 days. The vast majority of farm animals are fed antibiotics for their entire lives. And it's not because the animals are sick. It's because they are kept in 
conditions that would make them sick if they were not fed uh, antibiotics prophylactically. And what that means is more than 70% of antibiotics that are produced globally by the pharmaceutical industry, they're fed to animals, not fed to human beings. This is leading to antibiotic-resistant superbugs. And when you or I get sick, the antibiotics that are prescribed may not work. This literally, according to the former head of the World Health Organization, will spell the end of modern medicine. If penicillin doesn't work, uh, if the antibiotics that are used to stave off infection, if you get a cut, uh, don't work, you're literally talking about you scrape your knee and you have to amputate your leg. Um, sorts of uh, sorts of outcomes. So the end of working antibiotics, the UK government released a report last year, said the threat to the human race from antibiotic resistance is more certain than the threat from climate change. Similar argument can be made about the next pandemic. Uh, pandemics start in animals. And this one started in a, a live market with people eating bats, it looks like. Uh, it could just as easy, easily have started on an industrial pig farm or an industrial chicken farm. Um, and that sort of thing, experts think, is extraordinarily likely based on the way that we confine farm animals. Do you see governments, um, I'm not sure whether, whether the American government has commented on this or if it's too early, but do you see governments around the world seeing it, this shift in, in, the, in the food system that we're talking about today as a way of de-risking against further pandemics? I think governments are going to be more interested. I think for a little while, governments will probably be talking about things in terms of climate change, in terms of food security, and in terms of antibiotic resistance. That's just something that resonates in people's minds. It's something that people can see immediately. Obviously, we are all living through COVID-19, so we're living through a pandemic, and it's significantly less speculative to talk about that than it would have been even just six months ago. Uh, but talking about the next pandemic, no matter how certain scientists are that it's coming, they don't know the cause. And this definitely lowers the risk of the next pandemic. But the link between industrial animal agriculture and climate change, food insecurity and global poverty uh, and antibiotic resistance is just so clear and ironclad that those are probably the areas we'll be focusing on more. And just in, in a quick nutshell, we're going to have 10 billion people to feed by 2050. The inefficiencies of cycling crops through animals really make no sense at all. It takes nine calories into a chicken to get one calorie back out um, in the form of that animal's flesh. It's literally nine times as much land, nine times as much water, nine times as many pesticides and herbicides. Super inefficient when you can just take the crops directly and biomimic meat with those crops, or you can feed cells directly and lose all of that inefficiency. It's literally a part of leading to global malnutrition and starvation. And then the other issue uh, is climate change and a range of environmental issues. But I'm sure uh, many of your listeners and viewers are aware of the, the fact that the United Nations looked at the issues and said, no matter what environmental issue we're talking about, from the smallest and most local to the largest and most global, the way we raise animals for food right now is one of the top three causes and on climate change, the least climate change inducing animal is chicken, and yet 40 times as much climate change uh, per protein calorie for chicken than for legumes like peas and soy. Yeah, and I mean, I think something that often gets forgotten, um, I mean, we, we've been talking about privilege the last few months, that's become quite, quite topical, right? And relevant and very relevant, rightly so, we should be talking about it. But in this conversation of climate change, 
a lot of the, the the damage to our planet is being done by the the richer nations and the richer populations, but will be first felt and already is being uh, first felt by poorer, less privileged um, nations and populations. Yeah, no, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. I, I don't remember what the precise numbers are, but it's it's something very close to ninety five percent of climate change is happening uh, is caused by the developed economies, and then ninety five percent. Um, of the death losses in particular, um, as well as the economic ru- ruin is going to be fe- felt uh, in the developing economies. So it's a, it's really disproportionate uh, the way that we do a lot, all of the polluting. Um, and it's the people who can least, uh, who are um, most on the precipice, uh, who end up suffering the worst impacts. And I know that you used a, a great example in one of your talks with the, the uh, hummus sandwiches. And you sort of spoke to the the inefficiency. I think you were using uh, perhaps the the conversion um, ratio of chicken feed to calories from chicken, but that that kind of also directly speaks to the fact that the when often when we think of food waste, we think of what waste is left when we finish our meal, not so much the wastage that's happening within the system, and. When you start to understand that and you think about people in certain areas that are that are undernourished, malnourished, and not getting enough calories, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense the way we're doing things. Yeah. I mean, I, I, let, let me just uh, spell that out for people. So again, it takes nine calories into a chicken to get one calorie back out in the form of that animal's flesh. So that's the energy. That's the energy conversion rate. And chicken is the most efficient animal at turning crops into meat. What that means is you're literally throwing away eight calories for every calorie that you consume. So I suppose not literally throwing away, but eight calories are burned off by the chicken or go into creating feathers or blood or something that we don't consume, the energy we don't get from that animal. So none of your listeners or viewers would go to the refrigerator, take out eight plates of food and throw them in the trash. But that is the relationship that we enter into. 800% of the food that was grown, the crops that were grown, are burned off by the chicken or go into something that we do, something that we don't consume. So people are very upset about food waste and we should be upset about food waste. Something like 40% of food produced in the developed world is wasted. Uh, but just baked into the physiology of raising live animals in order to eat them is at best 800% food waste. So a few years back, the UN special envoy on food, a guy named Jean Ziegler, He called biofuels a human rights crime because, according to the FAO, 100 million metric tons of corn and wheat were being put into biofuels. But that same FAO report pointed out that 756 million metric tons of corn and wheat were being fed to farm animals, not even including the 85% of the global soy crop, another 200 million metric tons of soy that are fed to chickens and pigs and other farm animals. So, um, if the economics indicate that competition for grain and wheat drives up prices and leads to global starvation and that's a human rights crime, what about something that causes that that eats up more than 10 times as much um, of the crops globally? I mean, it feels like a human rights crime. It's something that we are involved in when we are participating in this system. But that message doesn't get through. Uh, for whatever reason, people are just not making their dietary choices on this basis for the most part. Um, so looking for a global solution, GFIs is let's give people the meat that they want, but let's make it in a way that doesn't cause all of those harms. Where you've landed on that as as your sort of mission, 
correct me if I'm wrong, that's uh, that's decades of your you know personally exploring this area and and essentially understanding that it is it's a hard slog to to try and change someone's behavior or opinion and and emotion that's attached to the the way that they currently eat. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's biological or physiological or psychological. I, I don't know what it is, but um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been vegan since 1987, so uh, a little over 33 years, or going on 33 years uh, as a vegan. And the entire time, I've been uh, an advocate and have been talking with people about these issues and how pretty much everybody, like, we all care about animals. We all want to make choices that are environmentally conscious. None of us wants to entrench global poverty. Like, these aren't things that people uh, want to do, but you know, there's just something about eating meat for apparently the vast majority of people. Uh, they're just not going to factor in ethical considerations. So I'm a big fan of continuing to educate people. I mean, the, the people who are making choices to dedicate their lives to recreating meat, people like Uma Valetti, who founded Memphis Meats, the two, Pat and Ethan Brown, um, who I mentioned, who founded Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, all of the people who are founding these companies and they're saying, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to remake meat, um, are doing it because they got educated about the external costs of industrial animal agriculture. So I think that's important. Uh, but when we're looking for a solution that is going to reach rural China, when we're looking for a solution that's going to make, that's going to reach literally everybody everywhere, if education is not even getting a vast group of people in Australia or Europe or the United States where education is at its most advanced about all of the things that we're talking about, uh, the idea that we're going to reach the whole world, it's going to be tough at best. Um, so let's actually just, you know, let's just remake me intend to, and instead of trying to remake morality. I mean, particularly given, uh, I think it, the, the, the goals laid out in the Paris Agreement are, are 2030 goals. So the writing, I guess, to, to sort of emphasize and I guess further frame this conversation is that we're not talking about changes that need to take place over the next 100, 200 years. Like we, we need to, we need to move relatively quick here, right? Oh yeah. No, it's, uh, <laughs> we, we, the, the best time to act is, you know, 20 years ago, the, uh, the best time to act right now is going to be right now. But, um, I mean, I, you know, people say that one, one of the things that people sometimes say is we're past the point of no return on climate change. And, um, I definitely think we are experiencing climate change. And as you rightly noted, uh, we're experiencing it uh, in sort of the worst possible way in the areas of the world where people are most vulnerable. But that's not a good excuse to throw up our hands. So we should still do the best we can in terms of mitigation. Uh, similarly, you know, COVID is, is meaning that for the first time ever, we're seeing glo global mal malnutrition going back up. Um, the trend lines have been good up until now. And now they're, they're, looking like they're going to go track badly again. And that's not a reason to, to throw up our hands. That's a, a reason to double down and really get about the business of solving these problems. And even if the, the harms are inevitable, we can make them significantly less intense. And that's going to be meaningful for all of the people who are you know, saved from malnutrition and for whom we preserve antibiotics and, and where all of the adverse impacts of climate change are, are less intensely adverse. Yeah, I think it's. I, I've heard people say that as well that we've we've uh, done too much damage and it's irreparable and it sort of is what it is. I guess it's a it's a little bit of a defeatist mindset. But even if 
this solution or these solutions that you're talking about in the innovation in this space wasn't to tangibly affect climate change it's still going to affect the amount of calories through creating a more efficient food system which means greater food security which means less people starving um, as you said it's going to be tackling you know other things like antibiotic resistance so if it didn't if it somehow didn't affect climate change it's still going to be leading to a better world in other ways yeah no it's it's i mean it's uh, it's critically important for global food security it's crit- critically important for global health the range of environmental issues where industrial animal agriculture is one of the top three causes, and that's literally all of them. Everything from land use to soil desertification to water pollution to water use to species loss to climate change, every single um, significant environmental issue. The way the inefficiencies and the pollution caused by raising animals for food is one of the top causes. And in terms of it's not just the inefficiency, right? It's right. It's not just that you need nine times as much land and nine times as many pesticides and herbicides and nine times as much water. You also have to truck all of those crops to a feed mill. You have to operate the feed mill. You have to truck the feed to the farm. You have to operate the farm. You have to truck the animals to the slaughterhouse. You have to operate the slaughterhouse. I mean, these industrial farms and these slaughterhouses are extraordinarily energy intensive um, and extraordinarily polluting. So it's multiple extra stages of gas guzzling pollution spewing vehicles. It's multiple extra energy-intensive and polluting factories. And that's why when you add all of those up, you come up with you know, the uh, UN report, Livestock's Long Shadow, and the degree to which this is just, you know, th- th- this way of producing food is just unsustainable and hugely harmful environmentally. Okay, so let's break down these, these sort of two, I guess, um, sub-industries of, of this new meat uh, industry. Uh, in terms of being a solution to all of this, perhaps we we start with with plant based protein, plant based meat. You mentioned before that we've come a long way, and you, and you talked about a, a few of these companies, uh, Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, who have you know really changed the game in terms of experience through a, a, a plant based meat product. Can you walk me through the the last couple of decades? What this evolution? has looked like and and where you see it going yeah i mean there's not a lot to walk through over the anything other than the last decade so um 2009 ethan brown is working in clean energy uh, he's a, an mba grad from i think columbia business school but maybe nyu business school um, and he's working in clean energy and he reads livestock's long shadow and he said like his motivating thing in life is climate change and he looks around and nobody's dealing with industrial animal agriculture. The IPC, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which shared the Nobel, Pro- Nobel Peace Prize with Al Gore, is saying we need to eat 90% less meat. And he doesn't see anybody in the environmental community talking about this. He doesn't see anybody in government or business talking about this. And he has the central brainstorm, uh, which is what came to be the Good Food Institute, the whole uh, idea that meat is made up of things that plants also have. He reads about some research at the University of Missouri, um, pea protein research focused on actually creating meat from plants. And he starts Beyond Meat in 2009. In 2000, at the end of 2012, he has his first product. Uh, John Mackey from Whole Foods is very, very excited about this concept. And um, signs a deal with Whole Foods to bring it in regionally, and then the next year in 2013 to bring it in all across Whole Foods. It's a, a chicken strip product that Bill Gates tries, and Bill Gates says, "What I just ate is not just a clever meat substitute. What I just ate is the future of food." 
really in complete parallel in 2011. Um, actually, also in, also in 2009, Pat Brown takes a, a two-year sabbatical. He's a tenured professor of biochemistry at Stan- Stanford University. And he takes a two-year sabbatical, and he's going to focus his sabbatical on what he can do with his life that will allow him to make a dent in what he sees as coming climate change apocalypse. And he figures education is the way to go. So uh, he starts organizing forums. And this guy, this guy started uh, the Public Library of Science. Like, look up Patrick Brown. He is a big shot scientist, member of the National Academies of Science, Sciences, and um, really just an impressive human being. Uh, t- tenured professor of biochemistry at Stanford, one of the top universities in the world. And, you know, as an academic, he thinks, I just need to tell everybody what's true. And he quickly realizes that, you know, as Pat Brown did at almost the exact same time, uh, that that's not going to work. And so he starts Impossible Foods in 2011. And unlike most most food companies, remember, um, Ethan starts Beyond Meat in 2009. It takes him three years to have his first product. Um, he pulled that product actually in 2018 because he said he was embarrassed by it. It's not good enough. Pat Brown started his company in 2011. Um, had his first product at the very end of 2016. And the thing to underline about that is that neither of them was about the business of selling good enough products. Neither of them thought that this Silicon Valley concept of MVP, most viable, uh, minimum viable product, made sense. They want products that will satisfy meat eaters out of the gate. And that's the the central brainstorm of both of those guys. And then Josh Tetrick um, at a company formerly called Hampton Creek, now called Just. And basically was doing basically the same thing, focused on eggs, um, also starting in, starting in 2011. So the first products in this vein uh, didn't come around until 2009. And the signature products of both Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, the Beyond Burger uh, and the Impossible Burger, uh, didn't launch until the very end of 2016. So it's, it's a pretty new endeavor. So, so tell me, and, and, and I may be jumping ahead to cultivated meat, but I'm thinking it's, it's a similar story here. These, these companies are essentially going after that person who would ordinarily be eating meat, right? What's the data showing? Like who, who is buying these products and what's that motivating? The main motivating factor seem to be for someone to sort of, I know that Beyond Meat is actually, uh, to my knowledge, they're in the meat section of, of some grocery stores, um, or at least they were when I was in the States. What's the, what's the motivating factor? Is it, is it, is it, it definitely doesn't seem like it's pricing yet. Is it taste? Is it the fact that they know that it's plants and it's better for the environment? What, what, what do you, what do you make of it so far? Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're exa- exactly right. Um, and the motivating factor seems to be novelty for a lot of people. So the first thing to say is that more than 90% of the people who are eating the Beyond Burger um, or the Impossible Burger, more than 90% of them are meat eaters, which is, uh, which makes for some, you know, sort of for those of us who are vegan, it's mildly frustrating that the default uh, at Carl's Jr., the default Beyond Burger uh, has cheese, thinking cheese has a variety of dairy mm. ingredients on it. And so too with the Impossible Burger um, at Burger King, the default uh, is not vegan, which is just underlines the degree to which this is not being fueled by you know a bunch of vegans. Uh, it really is being fueled by people uh, who are making the decisions. Probably the number one decision is, is it's just new and interesting, and people like trying new and interesting things. Number two is probably some very you know some sort of variety of factors. Like people have a vague sense. That the way that meat, well, it's not even vague, but I think when they're making food food choices, they're not thinking about all of the external costs of meat production. 
But they understand that there are all of these external costs of meat production. If you stop somebody on the street and you say, why is you know, meat bad? You know, and you, you know, they, they can lay out it's, it's inefficient. It causes animals to suffer. These other things, it's not good for me. And so it's, uh, it's something where people don't have to sacrifice. Uh, they're eating meat not because of all of these external costs. They're eating meat because they like the taste. Um, and so they're given the opportunity to try something that tastes the same or better and that doesn't have these, these other costs. And they go for it. So for some people, it's health. For some people, it's environment. But for most people, it's they're hungry. It's interesting. They want to try something interesting and new. Maybe they heard that Bill Gates or Richard Branson is into it. Maybe they saw, you know, one of the celebrities that is uh, either invested in or promoting or eating it. Um, and it just becomes sort of a hot new thing. Yeah. So what's it going to take to break through that hot new thing, that novelty? Is it the... I mean, the taste is is definitely there. I mean, from my experience, I'm, again, that's another good question for you. What what's the experience and the feedback been from from meat eaters in terms of how they think it tastes? And secondly, the pricing seems a little bit more expensive, but I'm assuming that over time, as the demand's increasing and and the 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 raw material with the bulk amount of ingredients being ordered is increasing, that that price is going to come down and based on what we're talking about before in terms of how inefficient the the current animal agriculture system is these products should in the long run be cheaper yeah that, that's that's absolutely right it's it uh, right now they are producing at such a small scale that economies of scale have not even begun to kick in I mean, it's, it's interesting. Jim Cramer, um, who's a very famous, um, probably the most famous uh, TV host on CNBC, which is a business channel here in the United States. He's probably the most famous guy on there. He's got a, a TV program called Squawk Box. And he was talking to the CEO of Burger King like two or three days ago. And he was saying, I've completely switched to the Impossible Burger. I absolutely love the Impossible Burger. I've completely switched. So, I, I mean, I do think uh, with sort of Veggie Burgers 1.0, pre-Beyond Meat and, and pre-Impossible Foods, somebody would try it because it was novel. They wouldn't like it very much um, and they wouldn't keep eating it. But with the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger or some of the other uh, plant-based meats that are coming along, people try it, they love it, and they stick with it. Again, because they're, they're not eating meat because of how it's produced right now. They're eating meat despite how it's produced and paying a little bit ex- extra for something that's, that's healthier and doesn't give you the pangs of conscience. It's going to resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think most people realize that a reduction in in meat is healthy, and an increase in plants and vegetables and fruit. You know, that's a message that dietary guidelines and governments have been saying for a long time. But you're right; this kind of product just makes that easier. It doesn't feel yeah. like they have to sacrifice something to to make that change. Tell me, I know that some of the naysayers may say that. These products are are using monocrops, right? What what are the the sort of current ingredients that these companies are are using? And do you think moving forward that there, you know, again as demand increases, that the market will open up to a, to a lot more sort of plant based protein type ingredients, which allows for more sort of polyculture farming and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think absolutely. Um, right now, Impossible Foods has moved. Possible Foods was using wheat and um, potato protein uh, in the Possible Foods version 1.0. They couldn't source enough of it. So then they went to Midwestern, so American soy as their primary ingredient. Uh, Beyond Meat is using pea protein and in direct response to to Beyond Meat's uh, skyrocketing demand for pea protein, 
um, a lot more pea crops have been grown in Canada and the United States. And uh, both Ethan Brown and Pat Brown talk about the range of legumes that could be used as sourcing for the biomimicry of meat. It's because there are there is lots of soy that uh, Impossible picked soy and went back to soy. It's because um, they were able to source the peas um, working, I think, with the Canadian government, um, as well as with uh, pea, pea farming trade associations in both Canada and the United States, that Beyond Meat was able to meet their demand. But uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is funding some millet characterization research through the Good Food Institute um, that we're doing in India. Um, and a lot of, of what we're doing, especially in India, is focused on figuring out other grains that farmers can plant that can be turned into plant-based meat. And that will happen more and more around the world. And the idea of get big or get out, which has characterized farming over the last 50 years, probably, we can beat that back a little bit um, as we switch to plant-based meat and source it from a wider variety of crops. So it's really interesting. The Canadian government and, and Pierre Trudeau offered a fantastic statement maybe a week or 10 days ago as they uh, funded the creation of a factory focused on plant-based products, including plant-based meat in Manitoba, which is in the heartland um, of Canada. And the Canadian government funded that at $100 million. And it's looking at pea processing pea protein and canola protein. Um, and I think we're going to see lots and lots more of that as the, the plant-based meat market sector continues to be on fire. Hey, friends. I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. The Canadian government, um, and certainly from their dietary guidelines, seems to be very, very much about promoting a, a sustainable diet to their population. I think it was the 2018 dietary guidelines that came out and were very, very plant forward. So that's certainly, certainly good to see. And I think it's also important, you mentioned soy then, but you made a good point earlier in this conversation that when, when a lot of people hear of soy, they think, and, and perhaps they've read something in the media about the Amazon, immediately they think vegans. And this is a really important thing to, to understand. You, you mentioned that 85% of soy is actually fed into the animal agriculture, um, the current system as feed for these animals. And then I think some's used as biofuels, which you also spoke about. And only about 6% of the world's total soy ends up being fed to humans currently. And none of that's from the Amazon. So not, none of the none of the Amazon soy crop uh, is being fed to human beings. All of the all of the export crop is going to Europe to feed the farm animals. That's why uh, Greenpeace unveiled this massive banner uh, in the Amazon rainforest. Um, it said KFC Amazon criminal. It's absolutely colossal, um, and that's because the rainforest is being chopped down either to graze animals um, or to grow soy to feed to farm animals. Uh, that stuff is not being into turned into tofu or um, any of the plant-based meats that we're talking about. Okay, so on the on the, these plant-based meats, this might segue us into cultivated meat. What are the specific challenges that you see with plant-based meat in terms of biomimicking meat and different types of meat out there? And where does you know cultivated meat perhaps have an advantage? 
Um, you know, plant-based meat and cultivated meat, they both have advantages and they have disadvantages. So it's interesting. Um, if you listen to folks from the Good Food Institute doing podcast interviews, uh, we, we don't have, we don't speak with one voice on, on, uh, which of these is going to be harder and which is going to be easier. So it was fascinating. Um, I was listening to one of our scientists, um, on a podcast the other day with the Sentience Institute, and he was talking about how he thinks plant-based meat has this, you know, sort of big advantage. And I was thinking, I don't think plant-based meat has this big advantage. Uh, Elliot and I should like debate one another on a podcast. But um, I, I think your intuition on it is probably right. But um, if Elliot were on here, he would he would be disagreeing with you. It does seem to me that um, biomimicking meat with plants is going to require a lot more technological prowess relative to to growing meat, scaling up, and getting the cost down. Like, uh, and this is this is counterintuitive for a lot of people because people have eaten veggie burgers and people have not eaten cultivated meat, right? Um, and so they figure it's got to be easier uh, to process plants into something that biomimics meat than to grow the cells directly. And that's that's certainly what we assumed to be true when when we were starting GFI back at the beginning of 2016. But we learn new stuff about plants and plant-based meat on basically a weekly basis, uh, whereas everything we thought to be true about cultivating meat, growing meat directly from cells back in 2016, like nothing's really changed. Um, and the reason for that is that people have been doing tissue engineering with human tissue for a really long time. We know how to do it. Um, so th there's a trick, right? I mean, if you want to immortalize cells, that's not easy. If you want to create media that has no animal ingredients, that works with, with uh, farm animal cells, um, and that is cheap, that's no easy trick. The scaffolding's no easy trick. The bioreactors are probably the hardest of the scientific questions. Uh, but none of the critical technology elements and none of the questions are different today than they were five years ago. Like they're tough questions, but uh, we're optimistic that we can that we can solve them. So um, the science of plant-based meat strikes me as uh, as being sort of harder and less absolutely clear. And then it's just also the case that people have the, these preconceived notions of what vegetarian meats taste like and what they are, um, and that they're going to be subpar. So we also need to challenge that. But um, but I think I mean I think there are huge opportunities in both zones, uh, and there are you know some pitfalls and, and difficulties in both zones. Okay, so let's zoom in on on the cultivated meat. And you mentioned then sort of bioreactor and, and and a few other words. And and this, you know, if this is the first time someone's heard this, some of those words may go over, over their head a little bit. So just talk me through like the overarching idea of cultivated meat and, and what it is. Like how do you grow a, a piece of steak or a hamburger uh, without the animal? It's really just like cultivating a plant. You know, you can take a, a cutting from a plant or a seed from a plant. And you bathe that seed in, in nutrients and the plant grows. In this case, you take a, a biopsy, the size of a sesame seed from an animal. You bathe those cells in nutrients and the cells multiply and grow. Because there are no animals involved, uh, you don't need antibiotics, which literally means anti-life. You don't need pesticides or herbicides for cultivated seafood. You're not going to have the dioxins or the mercuries that collect in the, in the fish flesh. Uh, it is a far cleaner product uh, at the end of the day and consequently far safer for people and their families. So, um, but it is, it is as sort of easy and simple um, as cell, cell multiplication. So you, you bathe the cells in nutrients. If you want them to form into something like a chicken breast, you're going to need to do it on a scaffold that allows the cells to collect in the way that you want them to collect. 
Um, and you do that in a cultivator, you know, so it's, it looks like a beer brewery uh, at the end of the day. So that's, you know, that's, um, looks like a beer brewery. Um, and you have, uh, but instead of, instead of having these fats, you know, with beer in them, you have these fats essentially with meat in them. Okay. And from a texture point of view, you're, you're growing these, these cells outside of the animal, but you're, you're able to essentially produce that, that meaty tissue that, yep. that people have come to, to know as meat and come to enjoy and, and love. And you talk about scaffolding. Is that using other, other types of engineered tissues like collagen or how does that work? Um, you could do it with synthetic collagen. One of our scientists just had a, a paper published uh, in the journal Nature about using, it's called Nature Food. Um, so one of the, one of the nature uh, journals uh, talking about using a, a soy scaffold. But you're going to want to use some sort of edible material to create the scaffold that the tissues will, will grow on. Um, you don't necessarily need that. You could, you could cultivate uh, the meat without that if, if what you want is, is ground beef or uh, chicken nuggets or something like that. But if you want to approximate something with a, a bit more texture like uh, a chicken breast or uh, something like that, you're, gonna, you're going to need scaffolding uh, in order to, to cultivate the meat on. Um, and it'll just be scaffolding. It, it can either be scaffolding that dissolves or scaffolding that is that is edible. And you mentioned that this is kind of not really new science. It's just a, a new part of an existing area of science. So where where are these scientists coming from? What were they doing before they were working at at Memphis Meats or other you know cultivated meat companies? They they need a range of scientists. And actually, this was the focus of uh, of uh, Elliot um, Schwartz on our team's uh, Sentience Institute podcast the other day was like, what should a college student study and what sorts of scientists are necessary? And at the end of the day, he ended up saying just, you know, sort of all of them. Uh, the, the one that people tend not to think about is we need meat scientists on both the plant-based side and the cultivated meat side. Meat science is a profession and both the plant-based uh, companies and the plant-based field and the cultivated meat field uh, need legit meat scientists. Um, on the cultivated meat side, we particularly need chemical engineers. We need tissue engineers. That's what meat science is. But then we're also going to need chemical engineers to help design the bioreactors because that's probably going to be the steepest climb is solving all of the problems or all of the, the scale-up challenges that come with moving from a, from a Petri dish to a 20,000-liter cultivator. Okay, and that's the the beer brewery, essentially what you described earlier. Yep, yeah, no, that's that's what uh, that's what the the cultivator, the bioreactor looks like. It looks like a, a big beer fermenter. So currently, just can you paint the picture? Where is this industry at currently, as today, and what progress has it made? How how long is it taking at the moment to produce a piece of chicken or a, a burger? And what companies are sort of paving the way? Um, well, it's super quick to produce, but I mean, right, right now it's, it's a little like the first iPhone cost something like $3.4 billion or something. And, and then obviously the, the prices just came down by many orders magnitude before they commercialized. So the first cultivated meat burger cost about $330,000 uh, in August of 2013. Now it's going to vary company by company, but some companies are, are talking about um, a pound of meat is under $500 um, just uh, says each nugget is costing them about fifty dollars uh, when you incorporate all of the costs. But we're we're very early days in the whole cultivated meat endeavor. The first cultivated meat company was Memphis Meats. It incorporated 
uh, in April of 2016. It raised its first um, funding in October of 2015, which was just $125,000 from the from the Bay Area Accelerator IndieBio, and then it raised um, a little over $3 million in January, February of 2016, incorporated in April of 2016. At the beginning of 2016, there were no companies. Uh, at the end of the, uh, 2016, I think there were eight, but probably half of them had actually raised any money. Now there are more than 50, uh, probably 25, maybe have raised a million dollars or more. Uh, Memphis Meats has raised, um, I think their last round was $183 million and they had raised a little north of $20 million before that. So, um, roughly two and two, $205 million. But I mean, that, that's really sort of a drop in the bucket. More exciting than the amount of money they've raised is the fact that Tyson and Cargill um, have both invested in addition to people like Richard Branson and Bill Gates. But the second and large, third largest meat companies in the world um, have invested in Memphis Meats, which is which is pretty exciting. Uh, but it's still very early days. Some folks are saying they're going to have sort of proof of concept products on the market uh, as soon as next year, which may happen. But if it happens, they're going to be pretty expensive. It's going to be a little while uh, before the price starts seriously coming down. The number one priority at the Good Food Institute, maybe even like the number one, two, and three priority at the Good Food Institute is to help governments recognize that for the same reason they're funding open access agricultural R&D, for the same reason they're funding uh, clean energy and other energy R&D, for the same reason they're funding global health R&D, they should be funding open access R&D on the plant-based and cultivated meat side in order to basically lift all of the plant-based and cultivated meat boats. And uh, this whole transition can happen a lot more quickly if we can get you know millions and then billions of government dollars focused on it. Rather than it all taking place independently and being sort of um, secret IP. Yeah, and one of the things that, so GFI has three programmatic departments and, and one of them is science and technology. And that's exactly what you were just saying with, with plant-based meat and with cultivated meat. What happened was you have people um, and they have an idea and then they have a company. So Pat Brown has an idea, then he has a company. Ethan Brown has an idea, then he has a company. Uma Valetti has an idea, then he has a company. And all of that R&D is protected by intellectual property. And nobody before GFI had said, hey, let's lay out what is the technological readiness of these new ways of making meat? Um, Where are the areas of exploration where it would make a lot of sense to apply scientific inquisitiveness um, and answer these really big questions. What do we know that hadn't been laid out? Um, What are we clear on that we need to figure out, but we don't know that hadn't been laid out? And where are the areas of exploration to figure out things that we didn't even know we didn't know? And that hadn't been figured out. So that was a big part of sort of where we started. And then methodically identifying maximum impact white spaces and solving and answering those questions as well. It's a big part of what our, our science and technology department is focused on. So how's that process going with the with the governments in terms of what GFI is doing in terms of trying to encourage them to invest more in this space? Is that an, an open conversation at this stage? Yeah, we're making um, actually just yesterday uh, on July 1st, our Israeli office co-hosted an event uh, alongside the Israeli Innovation Authority that was focused on plant-based and cultivated meat. Um, Israel is really super excited about this, as you would expect. Israel and Singapore, uh, countries with just top world-class universities focused on tissue engineering and plant biology uh, and the sciences writ large, 
Um, and then small countries that are not currently food secure, which is to say most of their food is imported uh, and they would prefer to change that. Um, so Singapore and Israel in particular um, are really leading the way globally in taking alternative protein development seriously. But uh, we're making excellent inroads um, in Brazil as well, in India, in Asia Pacific, even outside of uh, Singapore, as well as in Europe, in the United States. We're sort of just getting going. So I think it hasn't happened to a huge degree yet, primarily because nobody has come along and tried to make it happen. So um, we are meeting with enthusiasm kind of everywhere, including on both sides of the political aisle um, in the United States and Brazil and Israel and everywhere. You frame something in terms of, you know, make our country first, get bragging rights for this new way of innovating in meat. Um, and if you frame it in terms of science and innovation and small business and agriculture, um, these sorts of themes pretty much work with everyone. So, um, you know, check back with me in a couple of years. But so far, um, across all of the six areas of the world where GFI operates, a lot of, of bullishness and enthusiasm. Yeah, I guess it's it's important to be concentrating on, you know, like the developed countries like the United States, where per capita meat consumption is already very high. but also the the more developing countries who are, are quickly starting to to mimic and and follow the path of these developed countries like the United States. Yeah, we're not demand I mean GFI is not demand focused, we're supply focused. So we picked the areas of the world where we're operating um, on the basis of having one world-class universities that can do the science of biomimicking meat from plants. Um, or growing meat directly from cells. So in the six areas of the world where we operate, they have world-class universities. Um, then governments that put significant resources into research and development um, is the other factor. And then in, in some instances, we're also looking at where are the biggest meat food companies, where are the biggest meat companies. And the largest meat company in the world is in Brazil. The largest food company in the world is in Europe. Uh, the other biggest food and meat companies um, are in Brazil, in Europe, and in the United States. The biggest seafood companies are in Asia Pacific. And then India has more legume production than any place else in the world. World-class universities on both tissue engineering, uh, biochemistry writ large, um, and plant biology. Um, and then a government that is very enthusiastic about um, figuring out how it can feed its entire population high-quality protein far more efficiently. So um, that's kind of the uh, the thesis for GFI, thinking about our philanthropic funding and how we can spend it most effectively. So there's a lot happening around the world, and you mentioned before the the sort of the more efficiency that's been um, developed over time, and the the decrease in price per unit of cultivated meat over time that's been achieved. If you were looking, if you have you know with with your crystal ball, when do you see cultivated meat? starting to hit the shelves around the world i mean i i won't be surprised if the if the um promises of some of the cultivated meat companies um, of 2021 2022 at very high price points um in a limited number probably of restaurants that will it will not surprise me if that actually comes to pass i think scale up is is going to be a function of, of how much government um, support we are able to mobilize um, and our hope is that as environmental NGOs and global health NGOs and food security NGOs recognize the degree to which um, the SDGs will be advanced by this new way of making meat, 
we're hoping we're going to see more and more of a groundswell of support um, for these technologies that will um, create sort of a, a global R&D scientific race. Uh, you know, the, first, the, the government that relegates, uh, that, that divorces meat production uh, from the need for live animals is going to have bragging rights until the end of time. And, you know, we should wake up tomorrow and, and find that, you know, China or the United States or Germany has said we are going to put billions of dollars into this new way of making meat. Um, when that happens, um, that will accelerate things quite a bit. Yeah, I guess they, they're also, I'm assuming, would be getting lobbied fairly hard by the current animal agricultural system. Is there any tension there between this sort of new innovation and existing suppliers of traditionally grown meat? And how do you see that playing out? Is it always going to be a, a, a us versus them scenario or can it be a combined joined effort scenario moving forward? No, I mean, I nodded at this a little bit a little bit ago when I pointed out that Tyson and Cargill, the world's number two and three meat companies, are invested in cultivated meat. They're both invested in Memphis Meats and then they're both invested in another cultivated meat company. Tyson has also launched its own plant-based line. Cargill has a plant-based line that they tested at KFC in China. Um, JBS, the largest meat com- company in the world, based out of Brazil, uh, working very tightly with the Good Food Institute on its plant-based line and on, on understanding cultivated meat as well. So um, we definitely think, you know, these these companies, uh, their goal uh, is not to raise live animals and slaughter live animals. They do that because that's how they get protein most profitably uh, fed to the most people possible. But the value proposition of creating meat from plants and growing meat from cells, it makes a tremendous amount of sense that they would move into these alternative ways of making meat. Nestle, world's largest food company, uh, is all in with their, um, it's not called the Incredible Burger anymore because they lost a lawsuit from Impossible Foods, but they have a, a plant-based meat as well. Um, so I think we're going to I think we're going to see this be something that uh, that the conventional food industry um, and the conventional meat industry actually gets behind more and more uh, as the products get better and better. Hey, friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two week plant based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. And where would you say that that ultimately leaves the farmers, the ones that are that are currently raising the livestock? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's um, cattle ranchers are probably the only people, at least in the United States and Europe, who are raising animals on a large scale, who have jobs that look like good jobs from a conventional sense. Um, so at least in the United States, the people who are raising chickens and the people that are raising pigs and the folks who are are overseeing the process of, of creating eggs, egg-laying hens and, and dairy products. Those industries have been so thoroughly vertically integrated. Those jobs are probably the worst jobs um, in North America alongside slaughter jobs. And literally entire books have been written um, about how bad 
these folks' lives are, as well as as well as documentary movies. So it's worth noting that sort of with economics comes change for most farmers, as we were discussing earlier, this will be a good thing. We are completely supportive of government programs that help to retrain, that help to reconfigure farms uh, to grow uh, plant-based crops or to grow mushrooms for um, fermentation production as well. Uh, so I think we can make it mostly good, like for all of the crop farmers going from massive feed crop production to legume production for plant-based meat is going to be a net massive positive. And then if we if we make sure that we're we're taking care of farmers and taking care of slaughterhouse workers as the transition happens, it's going to just be a net hugely positive for workers. And you, you mentioned before you said uh, something about fish, and I think that that brings me to a question about cultivated meat. The options are, are, are quite endless in terms of what can be made through this the, this cultivated sort of uh, process. Um, we're talking like fish, chicken, dairy. Um, I think I saw a, a dairy, a big dairy company in the United States. Am I right? That's in this space? Uh, in plant-based, yeah. I mean, there's uh, Danone has purchased White Wave, which is the largest of the plant-based, plant-based producers. There are two different ways of producing dairy. Uh, using cellular agriculture. Uh, the first one is is what Perfect Day and a, a few other companies are doing. And Perfect Day, it raised some tens of millions of dollars, maybe north of $100 million. Um, ADM is an investor, I believe, and, and some others. And they use fermentation tech. They use something called uh, precision fermentation, uh, which basically involves um, taking the dairy proteins um, and brewing them like you would brew beer, essentially. And then there are a couple of other new companies. One of them is called Turtle Tree Labs. I'm blanking on what the other one is called, but they culture uh, mammary cells that then produce actual human breast milk. And that's for that's for human breast milk right now, but it could certainly, as they scale up um, and bring the price points down, they could use it for um, cow's milk as well. Um, it certainly um, will disrupt conventional dairy because something like a third of conventional dairy is dedicated or, or a third of milk maybe is dedicated to formula. Can't remember what the precise numbers are, but but this is focused on on human milk using cellular agriculture. Yeah, that could be huge. That's that's yeah, it's, it's very, fasc- very interesting. Fascinating stuff. Totally fascinating. So if 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 someone's listening and perhaps they want to support this space, whether that's you know through donation or investment or I mean, people can always support on an individual purchasing behavior with plant-based meats now, but from a donation investment or scientific skills, like what's the best steps for, for someone who is interested in, in supporting this space? Well, the Good Food Institute, we are um, entirely powered by philanthropy. So we are a 501c3 uh, nonprofit organization, um, and we welcome donations from anybody uh, who would like to help us. Uh, GFI is focused, as we've been talking about, on racing all boats. So. Um, our work on the innovation side, our work with investors, our work with scientists, um, and our work uh, across corporate engagement and across uh, governments is all focused uh, on making the entire plant-based and cultivated meat sector as successful as possible, as soon as possible. And uh, we certainly welcome people's donations. There's an Australian organization called Food Frontier as well that is sort of a GFI sister organization there in Australia, um, and they are also a nonprofit organization. So we I would encourage people to check out their website, check out our website, which is just gfi.org. 
Uh, we have tons of resources there as well. And people can go there and, and find communities and find webinars and find our massive open online course and, and all kinds of things that will allow people to get more, more deeply involved. Um, if you're interested in getting involved in the industry and you're in, in Australia, I would encourage you to reach out to, to Food Frontier anywhere else. Well, and, and including Australia, you can fill out uh, various forms on the GFI website that will begin to plug you into the various communities. Yeah, I actually had uh, Thomas King from Food Frontier on the show. It was a long while ago. It must have been a couple of years ago now. And I was reading the other day, there actually is uh, two or three startups in this space now in Australia. I think there's one called Val, Val Foods and uh, they're doing cultivated meat and change foods who are sort of dabbling in that dairy space that we just spoke about uh, a moment ago. Tell me, again, playing devil's advocate here, I've read some, some information and it, it seems like it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument coming from livestock industry that perhaps cellular agriculture, when it scales, may use more energy. Is that something that you've, you've come across and is it, is it something that you've looked at in terms of the data of, of the sort of fossil fuels required to power these breweries versus the, the, the methane that's, uh, you know, and the carbon dioxide that is attached to the current traditional industry? Yeah, I mean, en energy is the one area where because of uh, energy to power and clean the bioreactors, energy, the numbers I've seen, and, and obviously they're extraordinarily preliminary, um, and we're actually um, contracting to create a new life cycle analysis. The last one is, is some years old at this point. But even when you factor in additional energy use for cultivated meat and some of the, LC the life cycle analyses that have been done, uh, the climate impact is still astronomically better uh, for cultivated meat relative to conventional meat. And it's worth noting that uh, cultivated meat will require 99% less land than conventional meat production. And that land can be repurposed for renewable energy production, in which case 100% of cultivated meat can be powered by renewable energy, which is obviously very different from the current system. Um, it could also be repurposed uh, to be rewilded uh, to create carbon sinks. Um, so in terms of uh, water use, in terms of water pollution, uh, in terms of species loss and land use, um, and across all of the metrics other than energy use, uh, clean meat is a, a net massive advantage. Um, and then you ask, where is the energy going to come from? And if you're freeing up 99% of the land required for conventional animal agriculture, that's plenty uh, to deal with the energy needs. And then, of course, we've also got the things like antibiotic resistance, cruelty to animals, and pandemic prevention, um, all of which get significantly better with cultivated meat. And the, the, the cruelty to animals is one we haven't really explored too much here, but I think there may be some interest, I guess, from a, from a vegan point of view. Is, would a vegan eat cultivated meat? Is that going to be a, a, an individual decision? And you mentioned before the medium, I think you talked about the grow, the growing medium, uh, I believe is what you called it, can, can be from animal origin, but it also cannot be. Can you sort of walk me through, I guess, cultivated meat and the, the ethical component of it? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on why somebody has become vegan. So I've met an awful lot of vegans who just like, they don't like the taste of meat. Um, I think those vegans are probably not going to eat plant-based meat or cultivated meat. And if you have a sort of aesthetic aversion to eating animals, and I imagine a lot of people probably do, 
um, then you're probably not going to want to eat cultivated meat. At the end of the day, I think the cultivated meat companies are not really uh, gunning for the vegetarians and vegans. That's not their their target market, their target demographic. It's the people who uh, like and eat meat. But if you're a vegan like me, and I, I gave up eating meat 33 years ago out of concern for the global poor and concern for the environment, um, and then over time came to also have concern for the animals involved, um, those three problems are solved by cultivating meat. So I expect, I mean, I have eaten cultivated meat um, on half a dozen occasions, and I uh, expect once it's widely available uh, to consume it regularly, because the reasons I stopped eating meat are going to be taken off the table. But I mean, it's not a vegan product. So by definition, no, vegans won't eat it. And that may mean that a lot of people decide to stop being vegan because the reasons for being vegan go away uh, in a world where cultivated meat is available. Um, is that just... Is is that sorry to interrupt you on that? Is that is that because there is some animal involvement in terms of that initial biopsy and that 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 biopsy? What what's the process? How frequently does that need to be to be done? And and I guess at what level are animals involved in cultivated meat? Well, most most if not all of the companies, probably not all of them, but but most of them and all of the big ones um, are going to be using what's called immortalized cells. And that means you take a, a biopsy from a chicken or a fish or a turkey or whoever. Um, it's the size of a sesame seed, so it can be done painlessly, and it can it can supply meat, not really forever, but many uh, supply the world over for quite a while with a very few, um, relatively speaking, a small group of cells that replicate uh, in cultivators. So you can do it without immortalized cells. Um, so you can imagine a situation in which there's an animal on a farm and periodically a cell culture is taken from that animal. Uh, a biopsy is taken from that animal, but that's not the way most of the companies are thinking about doing it. Um, and I think especially in a world of cell banks. So um, two projects that GFI has funded, one for land animals and one for sea animals, is our cell bank creations, which uh, we're referring to the, the frozen farmyard in the first case. I can't remember what the can't remember what the other one is called, but basically the, the idea is that you don't need to go back to the farm uh, because you have a cell bank and you can get your chicken cells or your pig cells or whatever from cell bank, and so no live animals continue to be required. And that that seems like the direction that probably the entire thing is going to go. And then uh, part two of your question: Xenofree media is extraordinarily common for ther- therapeutics. Now, animal-free media, xenofree media means animal-free media. Um, is extraordinarily common right now for uh, tissue engineering. And all of the companies, um, every single one of them, is either there now or committed to being there. So in products that will be sold, uh, no companies are going to be using growth media that include animal ingredients. The other interesting thing, I think, about this space of cultivated meat is that if, if if we sort of look at all of the animals out there, humans probably only eat a handful. And I'm assuming, and, and I have um, spoken with some guys in Australia that, that I mentioned before from a company called Val Foods. I'm not sure if you've come across them. Um, Are they doing kangaroo meat? Yeah. So their well, their philosophy is that there's a bunch of 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 meat out there that humans are not eating that may have offer certain flavors or certain nutrient profiles and. That's sort of their angle that they're approaching. But that is another interesting thing, I guess, to, to think about in terms of the endless possibilities that this could bring. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a tissue engineering professor at Harvard Medical School uh, who likes to talk about the idea of eating mastodon. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, we, have picked, we have picked the animals that were easiest to domesticate or catch. And um, I mean, this is something that both on the plant-based side and the cultivated meat-based, they talk about. Um, with conventional meat, you are extraordinarily limited. You're not going to get any better, or at least not much better from an energy efficiency vantage. You're not going to do better than the physiology of animals in terms of, in terms of sort of that, that multiplier effect that we were talking about. Animals are just going to burn calories. They're going to create things we're not going to eat. Um, and you're also not going to be able to do any better on taste. Like you can get, you know, a slightly better cut of meat or whatever, uh, but you're not going to get, you're not going to be producing whole new species of animals. And then for people who like something like foie gras, uh, something suddenly foie gras has it, you know, has the same cost as chicken as it scales up. So um, any sort of delicacy that might now be extraordinarily expensive no longer has to be. And then as you just mentioned, a whole we're, we're eating chicken because we're eating chicken and it's inexpensive. We can create something that we like far more with plant-based meat or, or cultivated meat uh, because we're no longer limited by domestication of animals. How do you think consumers will you know, respond or receive this area of cultivated meat? Do you think that they will understand it and see it as something that is healthier and cleaner and better for the environment or... Will they see it as, you know, some some sort of science fiction laboratory style food? So far, I mean, it's pretty fascinating to me. The the polls that have been done, um, including one by an Australian researcher named Maddie Wilkes, uh, the polls that have been done are, are super positive and bullish on cultivated meat. And I think that's and, and they're even calling it, you know, they call it labra meat or they call it in vitro meat, you know, make it sound as scary as possible. Um, and nevertheless, like people, people to are some degree are, are to some degree conscious of the harms of the way that we produce meat right now. Uh, and you tell them, uh, Hey, we can give you the same taste, the same texture and the same price. And people are like, yeah, I want that. Um, and it's fascinating when you ask, I mean, even the people who say no. So, um, depending on the poll, it's somewhere on the order of 40 to 70% of people are like, yeah, I want that. And then a third of those people are like, yeah, I will pay more for that. Uh, but then you, even when you tell people, taste the same, cost the same, there are various other variables that you see, you know, you say that in the question and then you ask people and it's like most of the people who said no are like, I don't believe it's going to taste the same or I don't believe it's going to cost the same. Um, so once it takes, you know, once they try it, like one, and really once you have two products and one of them is, is produced the way meat is produced now and one of them is produced in this way that is far safer for people and their families, even the naysayers out of the gate are going to be convinced very, very quickly uh, that it makes sense to shift over. I agree. And, and speaking of naysayers, and I'm probably throwing a few of these at you, but I am I'm conscious of playing devil's advocate here because I think it's interesting. And I know that you've come across a lot of these questions before. Another thing that people may say is, why focus on this and, and, and why not just eat organic meat from regenerative practices? Can, can you explain why why that is not a solution to climate change and transforming the food system in the same way that plant-based meat and cultivated meat is? Yeah, I mean, there are people who will, in response to that question, um, dive into statistics and studies around regenerative agriculture and small-scale farming. I tend to say, you know, welcome to the club as we attempt to do away with industrial animal agriculture. 
for people who are willing to pay significantly more for meat that is less environmentally harmful and where the animals are treated less well, that's fantastic. They should continue to do that. But at least in the United States, that's less than one-tenth of 1% of the meat industry, less than one-tenth of 1%. And people are aware that those products exist, but people don't want to pay more. And so it ends up being an extraordinarily niche solution. Um, And we're not suggesting that any of the people who advocate that solution stop advocating that solution. We're just suggesting that there's another solution for all of the people who want to eat the products that taste fantastic and that are uh, lowest price. And that solution is let's let's make those same products from plants and grow them cells. That's that's what we think has the highest possibility of actually decreasing industrial meat consumption globally. So if you were to sort of predict, I guess, 10 or 20 years from now, where do you think that split will be in terms of plant-based meats, cultivated meat, and you know perhaps regenerative or, or other forms of, of grazing uh, in terms of a percentage of the, the total sales? You know, uh, Pat Brown at Impossible Foods uh, would tell you that we will be at 100% plant-based meat by 2035, so that's 15 years out, uh, 0% cultivated, and 0% regenerative. So that's his, uh, his sort of line-in-the-sand prediction. In my experience, there are a lot of people who just really want to eat animal meat. And I don't know what the percentage is, but I would guess that at whatever point we have divorced meat from the need for live animals, at whatever point we have gotten to the holy grail and we have plant-based and cultivated alternatives to every type of industrial animal meat, I'm thinking it's probably going to be 60-40 cultivated plant-based uh, and then I think your instincts on this are right. I think there will be some um, and probably a higher percentage than there is now regeneratively farmed meat, but it will just totally replace industrial animal meat, the, the meat that people buy because it's tasty and cheap. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your time. I could I could literally sit here and, and talk to you for hours. I think um, we probably only scratched the, the surface, but I, I do think this is a, a great introduction episode for for anyone who's new to this space and new to to gfi and everything that you're doing i think a a nice way to finish this could be your iphone analogy that that speaks to quick how quickly we can see change if people are thinking oh this just sounds like this is going to take a a long time do you want to do you want to walk me through that yeah, I mean, uh, probably everybody uh, listening has a, a phone within your reach. And if we if we had been chatting uh, 25 years ago, we would not be doing a video call. And now, in the age of COVID, an overwhelming number of, of uh, the calls that we're having with people are over video chat. Um, if I had wanted to call you on the phone just 25 years ago, I would have had to find a landline and I would have had to pay a lot of money. And even just across the city, 25 years ago, you would have had to find a landline. You would have had to pay. Well, you wouldn't have to pay to call across the city. But um, and now, 25 years later, we all have these phones in our pockets, and we've divorced phones from the need for cords and for from the needs for, for wires. Um, in one generation, I mean, 25 years is that historically, and yet the way that we communicate, we text message. Nobody did that 25 years ago. Uh, we Zoom or Google Meet uh, or whatever else. Nobody did that 15 years ago. Um, it's a radical transformation in how we communicate that quickly. Um, similarly, with uh, with the camera phone was invented 
20 years ago. And now something like 99% of, of photos are taken on that, on the cameras in your pockets. Uh, whereas we had a, not exclusively analog film, but digital film was insanely expensive. And the vast majority um, of photos were taken on analog camera cameras and you had to take the film to be developed. 20 years, again, it's nothing. And how we take pictures is radically different. Uh, the infrastructure issues are going to be different, but we really can. If we can create products that taste the same or better and cost the same or less, and we believe we can, the markets will kick in um, and you will see a very, very swift shift. And basically, we'll be divorcing meat from the need for live animals in the same way that, you know, telephone, the, the same way uh, long distance communication doesn't require a wired phone um, and taking a picture doesn't require analog film. Thank you, Bruce. Was there anything that you felt like we, we've missed at all? People can get a lot more resources at gfi.org. Um, and if you would like to support us, you can do that there as well. It's been a pleasure. Um, certainly, you are involved in, in what I believe is one of the, the most exciting industries uh, in the world right now, for sure, with, with such huge potential to, to, to better the world and address so many issues, issues that we, we covered today. So um, I said it at the start, but I really mean it. Thank you for, for what you're doing. Please do come back and, and join me. Um, I'm frequently in the States, so I'd love to catch up and, and do a round two at some stage. I would love that, Simon. I really enjoyed our time together. And thank you very much for uh, for covering these issues and for all you're doing to make a uh, more just and sustainable food system. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Simon. There we go, friends. I hope you enjoyed that. If you have just heard of cultivated meat, I bet it sounds a little science fiction-y. And that's completely normal. I too thought that a few years ago, but now I honestly think we will look back in amazement in 30, 40, 50 years and, and wonder why we were growing meat on animals in such an inefficient way. A bit like how we look back at pages, a much less efficient way to contact people compared to the mobile phones that we have today. What I like best about this area of cultivated meat and even plant-based meat, but probably to a lesser extent, is the capacity to which it can improve the footprint of our food industry. Putting the, the human health conversation to the side for a moment, because I'm not sure these foods should make up a significant portion of calories in one's diet that is aiming to be incredibly healthy. And really, I would need to study their nutritional properties more closely when they're made available. The mere fact that such foods could literally replace all meat from factory farms without the consumer having to make a big decision is huge. The same product at the same price or cheaper that tastes just as good or better, but is considerably better for our planet. That's a huge, huge win in my books. I'll leave you with that. Both Bruce and I would love to hear from you on social media. You can find Bruce at the Good Food Institute on Instagram and mine is at plant underscore proof if we're not already connected. And finally, the biggest way you can support the show, if you're enjoying it, is by leaving a review on the Apple Podcast app. So if you can take a minute to do that, it would be greatly appreciated. And if you already have, thanks so much. All right, that's all for this one. See you next week. Looking forward to hanging out again. Peace.